Close Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycled clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside Jeans and Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles. Picnic Wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun, new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at noflightbackvintage. Shift Clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple, hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the Party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. And Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Find our cute and sustainable fashion pics at the Silver Lake Flea and on Instagram at vino.vintage. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is unfortunately RSVPing no to your birthday month. I'm your host, Amanda. On the subject of RSVPing to events, it's reminding me of when Facebook events were like how you threw an event, right? Like it was the only way you got the word out there and it was not an official event or party or anything until you made a Facebook event. That's how everyone would know it was happening. And I don't know if you remember this, but you could RSVP maybe, which could either be some massive shade or a funny inside joke. And even when people literally meant maybe, depends if I'm scheduled to work that day, it still felt like a slight, like there was some other undercurrent there. Okay, well, that's not what today's episode is about. Instead, we'll be joined by my longtime friend and chip aficionado, Jillian. This is part one of two or three episodes, you know how I roll around here, about why we buy so much stuff and about how marketing and demographics research and social media have sent us all into a fever pitch of consumption. Today specifically, we'll be debunking the whole millennials only want experiences, not stuff trope. And we'll talk about how the drive to appear happier and wealthier on social media really just leads to so much shopping and eating out and lots and lots of debt. But first, as always, 
we have to take care of some business. First, let's talk about the newest patrons. Leslie Travis, who is a nurse and therefore deserves all of our respect and gratitude right now. So let's all take a moment to send Leslie some really good vibes. Leslie sent me the nicest message on Instagram and she said, well, I'm almost done listening to all the episodes. Oh no. So I felt it was high time I Patreoned. Thank you so much, Leslie. Your support means so much to me. And I'm really excited that we're getting some nurses into the clothes horse club here. Is this a clothes horse club? I don't know. I keep wanting us to have like a better name for all of us, this group of people that we are, and I don't have anything. So if you have a suggestion, holler at me. (laughs) Also, a few episodes back, I completely butchered Caitlin Gagne's name and I knew it. So I asked her to reach out so I could do it right. And here's what she said. My last name is French, and my parents just decided to be creative with their spelling on my first, so don't feel bad about getting tripped up. You and just about everyone else gets at least one piece wrong the first time. So I just went for it, and I got all of the pieces wrong. (laughs) By the way, I'm in love with your podcast. I've learned so much from you and your guests. I like to listen during my early morning bakery shifts, so I have to pause every time I go in the walk-in freezer or start up the food processor or learn an amazing fact that I must immediately go tell the barista. I pestered my coworkers a lot during the LuLaRoe and thrifting episodes. I've been on the sustainable fashion train for a bit now, thanks to Maison Cleo. She says, by the way, it'd be amazing if I could interview her, and I 100% agree. But Clothes Horse has given me such a clear picture with everything that's wrong with the fashion industry that now I take it much more seriously. You've also given me a lot of food for thought with regards to classism and how the problems in fashion mirror pretty much all the other problems in the world. It's true. It's true. I've always heard that the older you get, the more conservative you become, but here I am at 30 and way more radical and compassionate than I was at 20. Anyway, I think what I want to say is thanks for inspiring me to give a shit. Well, thank you, Caitlin. I think you're really onto something there because I've always heard that too, that as you get older, you get more conservative, and I think I'm actually getting more radical, and I have even more empathy for people who are different than myself. So I hope we're not the only ones, and so many other people are feeling that way. I hate that idea that it gives you license to sort of shut down your compassion as you get older. It's so silly, right? So thank you so much, Caitlin. I'm so honored to have you as a listener and a patron, and that was such an amazing, thoughtful letter. If you would like to support the show and me via Patreon, you can find more information at patreon.com slash podcast. I'll also share a link to that in the show notes. And if you can't become a patron, that's totally fine too, because you know what? This is kind of like a crazy nightmare year for a lot of us, both mentally and financially. And making this podcast and knowing that you're listening to it is my way of getting through it all. So I'm super grateful to have all of you here as a reason for me to keep plugging away at this. So thank you. Next, I have an Instagram message from Annie, who is a longtime listener of the pod, like since the beginning. She's friends with Janine, who was our very first guest. And Annie's in France, and she has some more advice about more sustainable ways of dressing your kids. In France, Spain, Belgium, the Netherlands, and maybe elsewhere, I buy secondhand on Vinted. Moms list clothes, shoes, toys, and supplies, and it's a lifesaver. You can pretty much buy any brand from high to low, and she has in parentheses here, 
Burberry baby trenches. Like what? That's a thing. (laughs) Okay. And the shipping is these weird shipping companies that aren't the post office. And you bring a package wrapped in anything. And then you pick up at a random shop you choose. So it's cheap, but can be slow. And they can change the location where you pick it up. Wow, this is crazy. And I've discovered so many great kids brands. And thanks to your podcast, I'm able to find clothes made in Europe. And it's even easier to find shoes made in Spain. I mean, your podcast has inspired me to find clothes made not super far away and hopefully under good working conditions. Vinted, by the way, also sells adult clothes. Depop isn't as popular here and we don't have Poshmark. So it's the primary secondhand clothes slash stuff app. So from what I've heard, Vinted is also available here in the US and I would probably suppose Canada too, but I don't actually know that. (laughs) It's funny how ideas sort of travel through the ether because I just had a conversation with another listener, Haley, about Vinted and how she's going to try it out and report back. And I'm definitely hearing from a lot of listeners that Poshmark just hasn't been good to work with anymore, specifically as a seller. So this could be a new option for secondhand selling and buying. If you have something you want to share about selling secondhand on Poshmark, Depop, Vinted, etc., please reach out to me. You can email me at closehorsepodcast at gmail.com or DM via Instagram at closehorsepodcast. And of course, you can also call the Close Horse Hotline. 717-925-7417. And thank you so much, Annie, for your advice and planting the seed about Vinted in my brain. And speaking of the Close Horse Hotline, I hear it ringing and it's our friend Meredith. Hey, Amanda. It's Meredith Petro again. How are you? Um, Sorry to blow up your inbox one more time, but I am just spending this lovely Saturday afternoon out on my back porch listening to your podcast, and I had to stop and give you a call because of the whole credit thing. I used to work at Express in the mall, and I was there right around the economic crash of 2008, and part of my job as a quote-unquote fashion expert Uh, which meant I got paid an extra $3 an hour than anyone else just because I had a fashion degree, I think. Um, My goal each shift was to sell three credit cards a shift, three. It was the worst part of my job. I hated doing it. But I remember the tactics that they taught us to sell. And now in hindsight that we're kind of out of that economic crash and in a slightly different but weirder one right now, it really is giving me the shakes because uh, I don't think I realized exactly what I was doing back then. You know, I was young. I was probably like 19, 20 when I worked that job. So I didn't really understand fully what I was doing to people's credit scores and lives. But um, I distinctly remember multiple times, you know, people, of course, were facing foreclosures and and a lot of heavy things. And when people were in that situation, we were encouraged to sell them the student credit card. So the student credit card, you didn't actually have to be a student to get, but it had a very low limit. I believe it was $300. So we would say, hey, you know, you can still get the discount. I think it was like 20% off of the day or whatever. Um, If you sign up for the credit card and we have the student version, which is a very, very 
low credit limit. So, you know, even if you're worried about refinancing, this is still a really good option for you. And now that I'm thinking about it, especially as someone who now owns a home, I'm like, good God, how many people's lives did I ruin by selling them an express credit card? I mean, the interest rate, I believe, was like 28% if you didn't pay in full every month, which is crazy. And I know that all of the other store credit cards are basically the same. So just made me think about that and how terrible that is and how every time I go to a store nowadays and they ask me to sign up, I politely decline, but I totally know what they're trying to do in the background. So word to the wise, avoid those credit cards. They ain't worth it. All right, guys. Talk to you later. Bye. Listen, so many of us who had retail jobs in the late 90s and early aughts were tasked with trying to sell these credit cards. It's kind of crazy. And I worked at Barnes & Noble where we weren't selling a credit card, but we were trying to sell some like really nebulous membership deal that was just like not a good deal. So I think we can all agree that it's not Meredith's fault that she had to sell all those horrible credit cards. And it was just what retail did at that point and continues to do. Like I can think Ulta and Sephora are constantly trying to get me to sign up for a card, right? I never had a specific store credit card and here's why. Well, first off, I didn't have any credit cards until I was in my 30s, which is something I recently bonded with Danny of Picnicware about. It made me feel a lot better that I wasn't the only person. I was incredibly terrified of credit cards because I'd seen so many people just like ruin their lives with them, both people in my family and people I'd met along the way. And There was this one summer in college where I was working at both Urban Outfitters and Starbucks because, you know, I needed money for school and to survive. And I was definitely super broke living paycheck to paycheck. So I would work every morning at Urban Outfitters and then very strategically change my clothes in the subway, something I had mastered from years of girls gym class so I could still change clothes without actually being naked. I'm sure... A lot of you are experts in that. (laughs) And so in the subway, I would change into my Starbucks uniform, which was, you know, like black pants and a black shirt, take out my nose ring, all that stuff. And then I would get on the train and go work my night shift at Starbucks. And one of my coworkers at Starbucks was, was just like living a credit card nightmare. She worked up tons of debt specifically on store credit cards, including Express, New York and Company, Macy's, I think there was a Victoria's Secret card. There was definitely some sort of furniture store on the list because I remember she had all this new furniture in her apartment that had been charged on one of those cards. And she was literally harassed day in and day out about her late payments. And in fact, her phone just rang constantly with bill collectors. So she got a second phone line just from making and receiving calls from her friends, work, etc. And the other phone line was just a voicemail for all these bill collectors. I mean, it was it was a nightmare. And eventually, at the ripe old age of 24, she had to declare bankruptcy, which also cost a lot of money that she didn't have. Basically, when I was working with her at Starbucks, she was working a second job as well to save money to file for bankruptcy. That's how bad it was. And, you know, that put the fear into me because I could see how someone who was living paycheck to paycheck like me 
could rack up some really serious debt. And so I didn't let myself have a credit card for a really long time because I just didn't trust myself. So as I speculated when we talked about these buy now, pay later services last week, store credit cards, also known as private label credit cards, are on the decline. Thank God. According to NerdWallet, before the recession in 2005, 51% of adults held a private label credit card, aka a store credit card. And as of 2018, that number has dropped to 40%. Now, you might ask, well, is that because less people are using credit cards? And no, that's actually not the case at all. Just as many people have regular use them anywhere credit cards as they did in 2005. As Meredith said, it's because people are catching on, I think, to the fact that these private label credit cards are rarely a good deal, especially when you compare them to the regular old, you know, like an American Express or Visa or something. Store credit cards are notorious, as Meredith mentioned, for their sky-high interest rates and predatory terms. Like, you don't pay it off in a month, suddenly your interest rate is like 28%, which for context would mean if you had charged $100 worth of stuff, you would be paying $28 in interest for that $100 purchase. I mean, that's not a good deal, right? If you don't pay it off the next month, it just keeps increasing. On top of that, these store credit cards, these private label cards, They can only be used with one merchant or a select group of merchants. Like I think if you had a Gap credit card, you could also use it at Old Navy and Banana Republic. But how useful is that? Because the rewards that they offer are severely limiting, right? Like, oh, you might get 20% off once a month or some other coupon or maybe, maybe access to a sale before anyone else. But the benefits are just about buying more stuff specifically from them. I do, however, think that these buy now, pay later services are the new store credit card. As I mentioned in the previous episode, when we talked about this, I expect that more and more retailers are going to be creating their own buy now, pay later service because they're giving a pretty decent percentage of sales to these services when they could keep that themselves. And if there's any opportunity to make a few more cents off of their customers, they're going to do it, right? So I'm very concerned, I'm just going to keep saying this, that they will become more predatory with time as more and more stores are doing it, creating their own services, trying to remain competitive. I could see the late fees and interest and everything else getting a lot worse. So just please, please be careful. And if you have a question, comment, a story, please call the Close Horse Hotline, just like Meredith. As you know, I'm working on an episode about collecting coming next month, so please call me to tell me about your collections or anything else, a funny story you've heard about collecting or a question you have about the industry. I love when you guys just bring something up to me that I've sort of been thinking about and like it kind of motivates me to do the work to learn. So like for these buy now, pay later scams, schemes, services, whatever you want to call them, uh, that was one, that was a great thing for me to learn about. So you're kind of doing me a favor when you call me and ask me a question. So today we're going to be talking a lot about buying stuff. And there's some info I want to give you before the conversation so you kind of have it in your mind as we're talking. So we're going to talk a little bit about consumer spending, which is the technical term for the total money 
that we spend on goods and services for personal use and enjoyment in the economy. So that means clothes, dinners out, manicures, haircuts, vacations, you name it. And I cannot emphasize this enough. Consumer spending is like a key driving force in the economy. And it's also a critical concept in economic theory. I was like, okay, what's an example of how important us buying stuff is to our economy? And then I was like, ding, ding, ding. There's like one right in front of me happening right now. So 2020, we talk about a lot, or maybe you aren't talking about this, but you're hearing it, that our economy is in a really bad place right now. It's like the ultimate illustration of how important consumer spending is, okay? In the beginning of the pandemic, when none of us could go out to spend money because, you know, there were stay-at-home orders, the economy took a huge dip. Unfortunately, small businesses couldn't keep employees while not actually making any money. Makes sense. So they had to lay people off and or, in the worst case scenario, totally close for good. Large businesses, which could afford to keep employees, chose not to in the name of maintaining or even increasing profitability. Trust me, it's happened a lot this year. These large companies didn't lay people off because they were going to go out of business. They just wanted to maintain their profit margin that they had pre-pandemic. That's all. So a lot of employees from both small and large businesses saw themselves furloughed, laid off, maybe losing their health insurance, really just losing their economic stability. So suddenly, a lot of people had a lot less money to spend on stuff, coupled with, you know, insane, horrible insecurity about their future. So all of those people who just lost their jobs weren't buying anything, even as places were starting to somewhat reopen. But remember, business was already seeing a dip there because of that. So this sort of made the dip even deeper. More people lost their jobs because of that, which led to a further decrease in consumer spending. And then more people lost their jobs. And so there was an even greater dip in consumer spending. And and that's kind of where we are right now. It's like this cycle of like, okay, people lose their jobs. They're not spending money. Well, that affects businesses who let go of more people. So there's even more people losing their jobs. They're not spending money. Okay, well, that leads to even more businesses. And it's just, it's just going and going and going, right? And it could get worse at the end of this year because I want to say 12 million people, including myself and a lot of people who are probably listening right now and a lot of people I know are about to lose their emergency unemployment benefits at the end of this year. Like here in Pennsylvania, I want to say it's two days after Christmas. Maybe it's one day. And that sets us up for an even scarier dip in the economy in January where people will have zero income. It's very, very scary. So what will happen then? Well, more businesses will close or lay off people, which will lead to less spending. And so you can see how this cycle just continues and continues because consumer spending is so important to our economy. And that's a whole other issue. Basically, the co- Congress needs to pass some sort of legislation to get some money back into the country, right? So we need to extend unemployment benefits, possibly increase them because it's very challenging to live off of unemployment benefits in most states. Uh, we need to put in some small business protections, you know, give them some money to 
keep going, keep their doors open because they're a key employer in our country. And state and local governments are really short on cash right now because people aren't buying anything and they need the sales tax. So you can see us buying stuff is so important to keeping things going. That doesn't mean we should go out and just keep buying crazy stuff. We're also going to talk about how much we work, specifically Americans, but everyone else is too. And it's led us all on this quest of maximizing our free time while exhibiting all of that high quality free time on Instagram. And I wanted to give you some stats about just how much we're working because the U.S. is widely considered the most overworked wealthy country. And note that I said wealthy country because we know that garment workers overseas are working 12, 14, 16 hour days, six or seven days a week for poverty wages. Ironically, so that they can make us cheap clothing and other stuff to make us feel better about working all the time. It's all connected. I just keep saying that to myself, to anyone who listen. all of these things are connected, right? So at least 134 countries have laws setting the maximum length of the work week. We do not have that here in the United States. We can work all the hours if we want. According to the International Labor Organization, Americans work 137 more hours per year than Japanese workers, 260 more hours per year than British workers, and 499 hours per year than French workers. I mean, that's that's like 10 weeks of extra work we're doing in comparison to the French. And there is not a federal law requiring paid sick days in the United States. The U.S also remains the only industrialized country in the entire world that has no legally mandated annual leave. I mean, we are working all the time. When we're sick, when we're burned out, when our mental health's not so good, we're working. And what we do or don't do for a living has become like the cornerstone of our personal identities. And we're going to talk about that a lot today, how work is part of our persona at this point. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average productivity per American worker has increased 400% since 1950. So this means that we're doing the same amount of work we did in 1950 in a quarter of the time. So when we work a full week of work, like a full 40, 50, 60, 80 hours, whatever you're doing, we are doing 400%, also known as four times, the work that we did in 1950. But after you adjust for inflation, we're not making four times the amount that we were back then. So who benefits from this like nonstop, crazy, efficient work ethic? Well, a combination of our employers and dun, 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 big business. Because Employers get more work out of us, and it's a smoking hot deal for them. I mean, literally, we're doing the work of four people, each of us. It's crazy. And then we get depressed about working all the time because we're tired, we're burned out, stressed out, anxious, all the bad things. So we spend more money, which is great for a big business, right? This is something for all of us to reflect on as we listen to this episode and afterwards. And I would love to hear your thoughts on it because – It's concerning that we're working so much and all we do is buy stuff to make us feel better. I mean, I've said it before on the show. I'm saying it again. 
I have been there where it's lunchtime, I have a headache, my stomach hurts, I'm so anxious about who's doing what, what's going to happen, this, that, that I have to go look at Zara and buy myself something to cheer myself up. And this is just such a common trap in today's world. I mean, maybe not as much right now when we're all sitting at home and we're broke, but I know it's a familiar feeling to all of you. So I would love to hear from you about how you cope with the stress of work, the stress of everything else in your life without buying stuff you don't need. Like in other words, what's a better alternative to retail therapy, which by the way is not therapy. Let's take a moment to talk about one of Clothes Horse's Pegasus sponsors, Selena Sanders. You know, when I take a moment to remind myself of all of the good things that have happened this year in the midst of all of the terrible things, I'm always filled with so much joy to think about all the incredible, talented, passionate, just like super lovely people I've met while working on Clothes Horse. And Selena Sanders is definitely one of them. I feel like we've known one another like our whole lives, and I'm just so excited to have her as a friend and as a supporter of Clothes Horse. So just in case you're new to the world of Selena Sanders and her one-of-a-kind, completely sustainable designs, let me fill you in. Selena specializes in upcycle clothing from vintage and thrifted materials like tea towels, linens, blankets, quilts. I think I've seen some doilies and handkerchiefs in there, and it's all beautiful. She very thoughtfully and very strategically minimizes her waste, so just about every single square inch of fabric is used. And she makes everything by hand in Los Angeles, which is in California. Her work, which is made to measure to your measurements, has been described as wearable art. Their workmanship is so intentional, and when it's cared for properly, it's designed to last in your closet for generations to come. I mean, we're talking future family heirlooms here. Giving Tuesday is coming up. It's December 1st, and this is a really important day for Selena and, you know, for all of us here, right? This is the time when we can really push our campaign against Black Friday and Cyber Monday. So Selena has partnered with sustainable brands from all across America, and some you're already going to recognize. So we've got Picnic Wear, Panty Witch, Guided by Flowers, Wide-Eyed Vintage, Liz Navarro Ceramics, Aloe Riviera, and No Flight Back Vintage. I mean, that's an amazing lineup, right? (laughs) Along with limited edition pieces from Selena, each maker and business has generously offered to auction off their creations, and 100% of the proceeds will be donated to benefit a national food bank in time for the holidays. This is especially important this year because thanks to COVID, this is the first time in our history where 40% of Americans are experiencing food insecurity. The auction will be live on Selena's Instagram stories. If you aren't following Selena on Instagram yet, it's at Selena underscore Sanders. And Bidding will begin on Monday, November 30th. That's the day before Giving Tuesday. And the winners will be announced on Giving Tuesday the next day, December 1st. And everything is so rad that is a part of this auction. 
Amazing pieces like reversible hats, bespoke panties, artisanal bouquet arrangements, and hand-painted ceramics. That's just a few of the pieces. It's all so awesome. Selena will start revealing the items on 1128, which is Small Business Saturday, and she'll be showing it all in the days leading up to the sale. So definitely start following her on Instagram. Once again, it's at Selena underscore Sanders, because you're going to want to see all of this. It's not to be missed. But if you thought that was all, let me tell you more about Selena's business. Giving back to the community is an important part of her business model. Every month, she chooses an organization to benefit from a generous portion of her sales. We're talking money out of her pocket. This month's organization is the Garment Worker Center, and this is an incredible organization. According to California Bureau of Labor Statistics, of the over 46,000 individuals who make up LA's second largest industry, the so-called cut-and-sew labor force, a whopping 71% of them are immigrants. Now, the issue of undocumented immigrants will always be a political one, but at the end of the day, it's a matter of questioning the value of human life. The American-based factories that fast fashion companies use, they owe over $3.8 million in wages to workers, with most of those workers making an average of $2.77 an hour. The Garment Worker Center is doing tremendous work in fighting to end sweatshop labor in L.A. They support workers as they lead the fight for a safe and dignified workplace with fair wages. The Garment Worker Center builds power from the bottom up for social and economic justice. They provide COVID-19 resources, lost wages assistance, and food assistance to garment workers and their families. More and more garment workers will lose their jobs as brands refuse to hashtag pay up and as more and more retailers close in the wake of COVID. Selena has hired two women who used to work in LA's garment industry, and she's proud to say that she's paying them a living wage. And I'm proud to hear that. Selena's web store, which is selenasanders.com, will start selling giftable items that you will actually want to receive. From masks that are upcycled from vintage hankies and scraps from tea towel tops with matching chains upcycled from vintage necklaces to adorable detachable collars made from embroidered doilies. I mean, these sound amazing, right? New items will be listed on the site weekly starting November 25th through December 11th. And Selena has a special offer for all of you close horse listeners. And I know that you've all been eyeing up her beautiful designs, right? Use the code CLOSEHORSE10 to receive 10% off your entire purchase. The code is not applicable to gift cards. I'm supposed to tell you that. Once again, that's CLOSEHORSE10 for 10% off your entire purchase. And I'll include that in the show notes. And one more thing. For the very first time, and only in December... Selena will add a supply your own tea towel option for tops and dresses and a supply your own crochet blanket option for made to order jackets. More info will come. So please subscribe to her newsletter at selenasanders.com for notifications and updates. And just a reminder, small businesses donate 250% more than larger businesses to nonprofits and community causes. 
If you spend $100 at a local business, roughly $68 of that stays in your local economy. If you spend the same with a large business, only $43 stays in the local economy. Let's continue our campaign against Black Friday and Cyber Monday by supporting small and sustainable businesses. Focus your dollars on these businesses because your money is as powerful as your vote. And you wanna vote for businesses like Selena's that are both environmentally and socially responsible. Today we're gonna be joined by my friend Jillian who so many of you have reached out to me to tell me that you love the horse tears on the Clothes Horse Patreon. You can credit Jillian for creating that concept and brainstorming the horse names. So thank you, Jillian. Uh, You're welcome. (laughs) Jillian and I today are going to talk about consumption, why we buy so much shit, how we see that changing down the road, and all kinds of other things in between. And I thought she was a great person to discuss this with because one, she's super down on the man and anti-capitalist and just a really great free thinker. And just a nice person to talk about all this heady stuff with. We always have a good time doing this. So I thought, why not roll it out for an episode? <laughs> so Jillian, why don't you tell us a, a little bit about yourself? Hi, Amanda. Um, well, unlike your guests that you've had on so far, I don't have like a real hard background in the the business that you deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, I was once... Um, <laughs> an intern and then briefly an employee in the Condé Nast archive. So I've looked at a lot of fashion. I've spent a lot of my life as sort of like an armchair shy demographer about style, fashion, um, and all that kind of aesthetic thing. Uh, But, you know, in practice, I'm currently unemployed and I've done a lot. Join the club. Join the club. Right. Yeah. I'm just, um, you know, Uncle Sam is my sugar daddy at the moment. Uh, or I should say probably Gavin Newsom because I'm in California and I'm riding that gravy train. Um, and in, <laughs> in my, in my like work life, um, I definitely, I, I self-identify as some sort of an artist, but I usually would pay the bills. Like I've been a nanny, I've worked in schools, I've done a lot of work with food in different ways, um, catering. I worked with a bakery that I don't want to talk about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no names. No name. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, but we, we've known each other for like a glorious decade plus, and I'm just super, super happy to like get to participate in what you're doing now with Close Horse. I think it's, it feels like a, like a really good fit for your, um, your knowledge, your curiosity, your, um, your passion <laughs> and your radicalism. I think it's it's just like a beautiful root. <laughs> thank you. Thing. Thank you. Yes. As the, as the person who worked in fashion that was always the radical one, it feels mm-hmm. like this is the right fit for me. Agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think what's also really interesting that I've picked up on of a lot of the people that you've interviewed, um, it takes me back to that feeling of like, I mean, I'm a few years younger than you are, but we have a similar sort of like 90s, where we cut cut our teeth on it all and kind of started really um, 
picking up all these signals about like what it is to be creative and stylish and how you kind of like build out your identity based on things to do with clothing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like so many of the people that you've spoken to that that like reignites in me that reminder of like why people get into fashion in the first place, like, and how then you end up sort of being sold this shitty bill of goods where you're like, okay, I've worked my ass off to do this thing that I love and to experience like taking all this inspiration and sharing it. And then instead it all kind of gets like beaten out of you. <laughs> I think. Oh my God. No, totally. I was having a, a little uh, Instagram chit chat with my friend Sherry today, who, as you know, mm-hmm. also yeah, lives Sherry. in LA. Yeah, yeah. And I was telling her how I had a boss who told me that I would be way more successful in my career if I had less empathy for the people who worked around me. And oh. I know, I know. God, and what it, a horrible thing to, to be I know, <laughs> I know, I know. And she's like, you know, Sherry, who has even more experience than me in the industry, was like, yeah, let me tell you all the bosses who have told me the same bullshit. All women bosses, by the way. I just mm. want to throw that out there. And that goes back to this whole dinosaur kind of thinking that Mm -hmm. in order to succeed in any business, you need to lead like a man. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other episode. That's a whole other episode. (laughs) That's a whole other episode. But I will say this. We were chit-chatting and I was like, you know, what I'm realizing is that the world as a whole has seen Devil Wears Prada and thinks that the fashion industry is toxic because Mm -hmm. of fashion and clothing being vapid. And I'm going to tell you Mm -hmm. that no, fashion and style are these incredible creative expressions. Mm -hmm. The industry is toxic because of the people who lead it. Because Mm -hmm. you come in, you love fashion, you love style, you love seeing people get dressed and feel great. And then your boss tells you that you'll be more successful if you don't care about anybody else. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And it's such a problem. Right, right. So anyway, (laughs) that's a whole other episode. But I do think you're right. So many guests come on here and they're just like, I was so passionate about it. I lost it being in the industry. I'm rebuilding it on my own. And that's kind of where I am too, you know? I've had the chance free working in schools and just knowing people to meet a lot of kids that are currently like teenagers. And I love the idea that Close Horse is kind of like... I mean, I don't want to get into like red pills necessarily, but (laughs) I feel like it's kind of like punching a hole in the firmament of like what it means to succeed as a creative person who loves clothing. Where like, can you imagine if when you were 13, someone like you had been saying like, hey guys, it's a scam. (laughs) Like, here's how it's a scam and here's why you're better off just like keeping on doing what you're doing and like doing it in a way that feels authentic and where you're like loving your people and you're really like making a connection and forging like your community in a really authentic way that doesn't have to do with all of this shit that just makes you feel bad and makes you feel like what we're getting to like you suddenly have to like spend your life like buying things to compensate for how miserable your you know quote unquote career is (laughs) totally totally god if only i could rewind my time knowing that i will say Dylan texted me the other day and she said, you know, people are complaining about prices going up at thrift stores, but I think it's because they don't understand what the price, the true price of clothing. Mm -hmm. And so they think everything should be super cheap. And when you go to Forever 21 and can buy something for $5, buying something for $5 at the Goodwill seems really expensive. And I was Mm -hmm. like, oh my God, I'm so proud of you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So yes, I wish that someone had shared all that with me a long time ago. And I think my career 
possibly even my career path would have been really different, but mm-hmm. definitely the shit I put up with over the last decade or so would have I would not have put up with it. I will say mm-hmm. that. Maybe yeah. my career would have ended a lot sooner. Yeah, maybe. Any, anyway, so to- <laughs> So when we started to outline this episode, it's like it's like a lot of heady content, and we went off on mm-hmm. a lot of tangents. So we're going to we try did. to rein it in here. What we identified as the central problem when we talk about consumerism, of buying fast fashion, of having too much stuff, is that people – get ready for this. This is pretty dark. Mm-hmm. People are generally unhappy and unsatisfied in their lives right now. <laughs> yeah, and I would say, like, I mean, to say right now is, like, a little bit of, like, a well – Duh. Duh. How about we say like have for say, a long time? They yeah, have been I would for say a long time. Certainly, yeah. And I so I mean, of course, like everyone knows, twenty twenty has been um, very unhappy. Like, <laughs> has been a real walk in the woods. For all of yes, us. yes. And so I would I would ask you as you listen to Jillian and I talk about this that you travel back in time to a kinder, mm-hmm. gentler time that we call two thousand nineteen. Right. Right. Because yeah. I can tell you. In 2019, I felt pretty generally unhappy and unsatisfied with my life. Oh, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> it was horrible. Had you told me that this is what 2020 would be, I might have worked a little harder to get out of that. But I mean, listen, this year has been terrible, but we can't step back and say, oh, the last decade has been fucking amazing because that's not true. Well, I also think it's important that we can't treat 2020 as if it just occurred in a vacuum, but that's a whole other story. That's a whole other story too, but absolutely. Yeah. The capitalist system that we live in right now depends so much on us being generally unhappy and unsatisfied Mm -hmm. in our lives because we have to consume more and more stuff to feel better. Mm -hmm. And that capitalist system has been very problematic for a long time. And I think it's just really rearing its ugly head in 2020. Or the ugly head has always been reared, but we're finally like taking the blanket off of it. And we're like, oh shit, this Mm -hmm. is a bad scene, right? So our economy is built upon buying stuff. Consumer spending accounts for a sizable chunk of the North American economy, comprising 56% of the economy in Canada and 68% in the United States. That means 68% of the money spent in the U.S. is on buying stuff. Well, and another sidebar to that is that we're talking about stuff that by and large is not being produced domestically either. So we're like, you know, kind of propping up this whole economy on all these systems that you've talked about in the past that involve, you know, like shipping things from overseas, having production overseas and all this. So it's not as if, you know, we're like, we've got someone, you know, making garments in our town and we're spending money on that, you know. Right, right. (laughs) I mean, our, our economy relies on us spending money on all this stuff. But so does the rest of the world economy. Like the world economy is kind of leaning on us to just be this like these shopaholics. Yeah. I mean, that's a house of cards right there, which is we're seeing right now Mm -hmm. as our ability to buy tons of shit is falling off. The whole world is struggling. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this a world in which we chill on spending is going to take a lot of work and a mm-hmm. lot of change. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, and it's not like we think it's going to happen next week no. or even next year. But wouldn't it be amazing if, like, all the kids that all our friends are having right now already have, they got to inherit that world? So yeah. just keep that in mind. So one thing I was telling Jillian is, like, you know, I've spent this all this time in the industry, and I go to so many of these meetings where we're like, 
why is our business not good? Why are our sales down? And rather than saying, hey, maybe because we make shitty product and people don't come back for it, or maybe we're buying the right th- wrong things, or maybe nothing fits anyone. Instead, it's always, well, you know, the millennials, they don't want to buy stuff. They just want to have experiences. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Trust me. It's always been like, like I've literally been in meetings, Jillian, where it's been like, okay, well, if they want to have experiences, then maybe we need to sell stuff that relates to experiences. Like, should we get into luggage mm. so they can travel? Should we sell them more toiletries? And I will say that we have seen a huge rise in the world of like hip Instagram luggage and traveling accessories. Mm-hmm. So some people did latch onto that. You wouldn't have Away and mm-hmm. Cowpack and a gazillion other brands and all the little toiletry things and stuff like I mean, Sephora relies on us needing to buy all those little tiny baby size things for all of our experiences we're having, right? right. Yeah. Anyway, I was like, is that true? You know, I never – in all of these years of sitting in these dumbass meetings where we blame millennials for everything. (laughs) I mean, I do believe that the millennials killed Applebee's, but I fully support that. Mm. But I was like, you know, is that real? Because I feel like I get told a lot of stuff, especially when I'm working in the biz. And it always ends up like not being very true. So I I did some digging here. So there was a 2018 study done by Expedia. I don't know why they're doing studies, but whatever. But also, I mean, they're they're an experiential brand, right? They're about yeah, it's um, right there in their names. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they did this in partnership with the Center for Generational Kinetics, which sounds pretty cool. And it sounds like it sounds like some kind of like a really brightly colored like kindergarten for all ages or something that you have. It It does sound pretty fun. It sounds like a really cheery place to work. It also sounds like it would be in like Denmark or something. Yes, for sure. I'm I am picturing bright decor, but like sleek, futuristic furniture, Mm -hmm. Uh, but all padded so that as you're kinetifying all around, you're not going to hurt yourself. Well, and I I imagine everyone being in like really state-of-the-art like jumpsuit or like sweatsuits. Oh, yeah. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Like cheery cheery colors mm -hmm. though, you know? Yeah. No, I'm (laughs) trying to think there's like... um, Oh, I'm losing the, I can't remember what it is, but there's like a design school in Holland that like all the people that make like really, you know, minimalist dwell magazine furniture come from. I imagine them having like a piece of that pie. (laughs) Oh, for sure. For sure. This is a partnership for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, So according to this study, 74% of Americans say they prioritize experiences such as travel over products or things. And like, okay, I will say, For me, travel is my greatest pleasure, Mm -hmm. you know. I know a lot of my friends are that way as well, but I do not think that this entire generation – or in fact, because this is just talking about the entire country – that this entire country has said, no, traveling is way more important to me than anything else because, like – Target would go out of business, I think. Right. Well, but <laughs> right? I think another thing which you touched upon when you were talking about Sephora and the luggage is that we have this way, um, and I think like advertising has to do with it. And of course, um, the fact that I, don't, I didn't put it in our um, 
cheat sheet, but when you start thinking about like, if you just casually want to look up Jung archetypes, you know, and just like check the wheel on the internet and get a graphic, it, everything is about marketing. It's about branding. It's about, you know, these sort of lifestyle niches. And so like the color coding and this sort of archetypes are being used against us in this way where like, okay, say I am like, I do prioritize travel and I'm, you know, like a millennial and I live in California and I have a certain kind of a life that, um, that I find myself in, you know, where I'm like, you know, like I don't have a lot of money, but I do like to have nice things. And then I'm like, oh, well I'm traveling. And then you immediately start making this mental list of like the things that specifically for your travel are going to like cinematize your experience because that's how like instagram works that's how the whole thing works we're like set dressing our lives all the time you know we're like costuming ourselves 100 percent, 100 percent. and i it's funny that we're talking about this because this whole experiential element this conversation about experience and supposedly millennials drive and preference for experience in all these dumb meetings where we've talked about how that's why they're not buying stuff from us We've also then said, you know what? It's because we need to put more of an experiential element in our stores. And Mm -hmm. this is like something that every remotely hip retailer has jumped on, whether it's some sort of like Instagram photo booth area or like I went to this store, that shoe brand Allbirds, I went to their store Mm -hmm. in Soho and they sell approximately five – it's like one shoe maybe in five colors. It's not Mm – enough shoes to fill a store. Like, let's be Mm. realistic, which is perhaps why 95% of the store is all these crazy Instagram installations. And it makes me think of those pop-up quote-unquote art events that are Mm -hmm. really these like chances to go take Instagram photos of yourself. Museum of ice cream and all that kind of stuff. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so I will tell you that the man, if you will, mm-hmm. has figured out what you really mean by experiences yes. and is making money off of you, right? And I think it also mm-hmm. comes back, we're going to get into this a little bit later, but this like social media tie-in, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so we talk about the millennials being into the experience or whatever, but I have to tell you that both millennials and their arch nemesis, the boomers- AKA mom and dad. Uh, right. They all said- that they were enthusiastic supporters of the experiences over things trend, which, hey, I live out in Amish country now. There's yeah. a ton of experiential experiences for your mm-hmm. parents to come and have here, whether it's quilt museums, farmers markets, tours of faux Amish farms. I mean, like these are experiences as well. It's not just jetting off to South America, right? Right. For that matter, an experience is, you know, like going for a walk in your neighborhood. <laughs> you know, like, it is. Wow. I mean, like, you know, it's, you mean it's something like, that's free. You mean that some an experience that is free or low cost could be meaningful? <laughs> I know. Don't don't shoot. <laughs> but like, <laughs> I mean, I remember like there used to be, I think it was on like Nickelodeon or something. And it was in the 90s, I believe, where they were like, oh, you know what's even hotter than the virtual reality? This is like when virtual reality was still like hoverboards, you know, oh, like the gosh. idea that yeah. like such a thing could ever be outside of like, you know, a coming of age science fiction film. But like, so they're like, yeah, but why have virtual reality when you can have actual reality? You know, they like give the kid a basketball and he's like running around. But seriously, like, <laughs> for me, when I think about experiences, like 
hanging out with my cats. That's an experience. I don't even have to leave, you know, my bed to do that. <laughs> right, right. Great. Well, and I think it comes back to, I mean, the way we're th- not we, you and me, but like we Americans, the, the we, greater we, yeah. The, yeah, the greater we, the way we view experiences is that it somehow has to involve some consumption. <laughs> Do you know what sure. I mean? Like, yeah, and, like, I mean, <laughs> well, you think about things like, um, I mean, my dad is like, I think about my dad when I think about this, because I remember we once went to visit like some family friends who lived in the UK and they had one of those, um, like it was like the heritage pass where you can go see like all the castles and the gardens and all that shit. Mm -hmm. And so it was like a day out and they're like, oh yeah, we love history. And because my dad didn't have the pass, he had to actually like shell out money for all these things. And you know, by the end of it, it's like when you go to the museum and you feel like experience culture drunk you know like actually how much of that shit does anyone need to absorb at any given time like i think it takes us as organisms quite a while to like process our experiences (laughs) and so i think when you like have this fever pitch of experience like you sort of look one like suddenly your bank account is empty and you're like yeah i can't even remember what i did (laughs) because it's like yeah i know too many experiences (laughs) I mean, that's definitely happened to me on certain vacations that I've taken where I'm like, okay, in the morning I'm doing this and the afternoon mm-hmm. I'm doing this. And then here's the evening itinerary and I don't get to process it for like three weeks. Well, and it's you know? the classic, um, you know, sort of like people sort of frown upon the old school like bus holiday, you know, where it's like, if it's Tuesday, it must be Rome <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> but like, and I think that gets to like another question that I have about, um, like the depth of the desire for the experience sometimes where like, I think a lot of it sometimes feels very arbitrary to me. Like when someone says like, Oh, I want to see Paris before I die. And you're like, Oh, are you like really into French culture? You know, like, are you like really a big fan of whatever? Or like, you know, is there some like movie you saw that made you love it? And they're like, no, I just want to like have my picture taken in front of the Eiffel tower. (laughs) You're like, you're fucking kidding me. You're going to spend like $3,000 to like have a photo op in front of the Eiffel tower. And why? (laughs) It's just, I don't know. It's just, I think that we're going to talk more about this later, but just this sort of idea of like, when you really like take a minute to stop and ask yourself why it is you feel like you need this thing or this experience. Like, I don't know if you always really like can give yourself a satisfactory answer. (laughs) At least I can. Yeah, no, I would totally agree. Well, economists are saying like, okay, this whole idea that millennials are at least saying to everyone is that they, Mm -hmm. you know, about prioritizing experiences. It's not that simple. It might be what they believe, which I would say, hey, I've always kind of believed that about myself, but I also found myself in jobs where I had to look at Zara every day because I was like Mm -hmm. so incredibly depressed, but I still would have told you experiences are my priority. Mm -hmm. Economists are pointing out that the younger millennials, which would range from being in their early 20s right now to about 40, a little Mm -hmm. bit older, depending on, there's a lot of different ways about looking about who is a millennial and not. Mm -hmm. When you're in your 20s, you're at the like sort of lowest point of lifetime consumption. So think about it. You make less money, you have less space to fill with stuff, you have more student loan debt. You might, um, depending on what you're trying to do, you might be moving more often, which Mm -hmm, kind of like mm -hmm. deprioritizes that sort of feeling of like, I'm going to, you know, nest or fill my house or um, whatever, which I think is also another thing where there's that like milestone feeling that people have where you like get your first place, you know, you're going to stay in for a long time. And then you're like, oh, I'm going to like really, you know, like 
go ham with, you know, design or whatever. Cause like people sort of have this idea, I think that's been given to us by Ikea, by, um, you know, lifestyle magazines and blogs and all these sorts of things that, that like, it's not okay to like build your house piece by piece, you know, that it sort of has to be this like living room set or something, you know, like, yeah, yeah, like you have to, you have to like back up this huge moving truck to Ikea and fill it all at once and then snap your fingers and your house is decorated fully. Like there's no transition. Yeah, exactly. You're there. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just, it's weird to me because like as someone who has moved many, many times in my life, um, I've sort of like the more I move, I feel like the less stuff I want or like the the more I kind of like in practice and like test driving, like I've got like four pans that I haven't touched in two moves, <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah, yeah. it's just no, four totally. pans, but that shit adds up, you know? <laughs> totally, totally. Well, if you want an example of how that like shakes out age-wise mm-hmm. in terms of like consumption... The average household headed by someone in their 20s spends about $69,000 a year on consumption, which is still a lot of money. And about $4,000 of that is on clothes. Well, -hmm. guess what? Someone who's in their 30s is spending a little bit more than $71,000. So not even a full $10,000 a year difference. No. And they're spending roughly the same amount of money on clothing. So. It's like there's more consumption happening than it seems, I guess is what I'm saying. But the the person in their 20s is spending a lot less on like home things. Right? Yeah, and I think that I think that it's also important to think like I don't know, I feel like there's so much backdoor consumption that occurs, you know, like just like little like nickeling and diming yourself, which is really easy to do when you have a debit card because you just kind of whip the card out mm-hmm, and you're like, okay, mm-hmm. sure, that or that or that. And um, something that you and I were talking about before we hit record, um, which is to do with this kind of like cross section of the millennial experiential factor with the consumption is um, like a fat Venn diagram point where because of this um, kind of uh, premium that's being put on the idea of experiences, I think there's a lot more of like inventing sort of like fake holidays, you could call them. We were talking about like- Oh my God, yes. (laughs) When you brought that up, it was like ding, 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 ding. Because one thing I will tell you working on the retail side of that is that over the years, it's been like- Every retailer has realized that customers want a sale. They want a deal. Mm-hmm. And you can't just be like, hey, today's Thursday. We're going to give you 20% off because we're behind on our sales goal. Although, <laughs> honestly, I would respect that person, right? Yeah. <laughs> instead, you, instead, you have to say, it's National Pretzel Day. Let's get mm-hmm. twisted by taking 20% off. So like, I think that retail has helped us all accept this idea of like random and meaningless holidays and milestones. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, if you think about it too, television has, has played a part. Like when did, um, what is it? The, the 4th of May became like national star Wars day, you know, like like everyone's all like, may the 4th be with you. And you're like, aha, I get, I get what you did there. But like really every year now we're going to like celebrate. Yeah. Or like, 
the first time I heard pie day, which you know is 314, I was mm-hmm. like, oh, that's cute. Everyone should eat a piece of pie today if you love math. But then it turned into like, hey, you should probably buy this pie print dress or this pie sweatshirt or. Well, and that's not just- even the only pie day because actual National Pie Day, which is sponsored by the Pie Council, happens in January. <laughs> Which is totally unrelated to mathematics. Totally. It's spelled differently and everything. But it is another opportunity to sell someone pie. I love that you knew that it was in January. Like, that is impressive to me. I know you you have a bakery background. I know. Yes. uh, Coming in handy. I'm a company man, Amanda. Well, Well, and... Go ahead, sorry. You and I was telling you that, like, this trend I've noticed over the past, I don't know, it could have been the last 10 years. It was so, like, nefarious and sneaky the way it kind of crept into my life. (laughs) Yeah, it's completely insidious is this idea of I'm having a birthday weekend. Now I'm having a birthday week. Now I'm having a birthday month. And shall this turn into a birthday quarter? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Of, like, okay, so we mean, like, all these different events that you have in honor of your birthday, which I just want to remind everybody does come every year. Mm -hmm. And there's like all these restaurant dinners and special outfits and drinks and going out to the club and picnics and and karaoke and amusement park and camping. I could go on and on and on and on where people send out itineraries. I want to add that, that people will send out an itinerary for their birthday, their birthday month. Okay. Well, and also like, might I just say, Group restaurant dinners, and this, I mean, I'm going to talk a little bit about this too when we get to brunch. (laughs) Oh, you know how I feel about brunch. (laughs) Oh man, I would like rather crawl through broken glass than attend group restaurant dinners. I fucking hate them. It's not fun. It's It's not fun for anybody. It's one thing to go out to dinner with two, three of your friends, right? It's quite another to go out with 10 or 20. You don't get to talk to everyone. You don't get to talk. There's no table. There's no table yet devised at a restaurant that like solves the problem of how to talk in like a real natural way to people when you're in a restaurant. It's not like you're at a wedding where you could like get up and wander around and like sit and chat. No, that would be awkward. (laughs) You got up in a restaurant. You can't really (laughs) do that in a restaurant. And then, yeah, like you were about to say, there's that factor of the bill, which is something that my mother is like an absolute fiend about. Is she's like she to this day will harp on about like the $20 soup or salad she got at some fucking restaurant dinner with other people in like 1976, you know? No, I mean, I get it. I had a soup (laughs) and then everyone else got wine. I mean, you know, we all have those people in our lives who go out to dinner and they have like three drinks Mm -hmm. and the steak meal or something. And then you're like, well, Mm -hmm. I was just having like something a little light. Yeah, It's like, I'm going to have surf and turf and four drinks and then like a dessert cordial. (laughs) And you're like, I had a side salad and a glass of sparkling water, not because I have an eating disorder, but because I wanted a light meal, you know, and then you're and then it's like, okay, well, let's split this in half. Let's split it. And you're like, I just paid $75 for a side salad. (laughs) Don't get me started. I I will say that I am happy for the dawn of Venmo because what I will Mm -hmm. generally do, because Within my groups, all my groups of friends, you know, we have some people who have more money than others. We have some people who just mm-hmm. drink way more than others. I mm-hmm. will literally take the ownership and say, I'm putting this all in my card. I will Venmo you each your share and you can just pay me that way. Mm-hmm. So nobody has to be like, well, I paid 
$75 and she paid 20. Like, no, let's just all be fair. You know? Yeah. It's such a, it's, it's such just like an uncomfortable reckoning every time because there is all that social pressure involved. And then people are like passing the bill around and like pulling out their calculators. And it's just, it's a nightmare. It is a nightmare. I (laughs) hate it. I hate it. Um, Even though, all modern smartphones have a calculator on them. You still find mm-hmm. that this is an excruciating process. Um, and oh, I yeah. hate the like, we have seven credit cards to give the server. So anyway, uh, I will, yeah. I have talked on the show before about how I'm a little dubious about Venmo and I want to know what the catch is, sure. but I will say that it has yeah. made group dinners less stressful for me. But I still say mm-hmm. that you should never have dinner with more than two or three other people. <laughs> That's all. I, out, out. Out. I mean, because I, I think that's also, I mean, that gets, it's it's going to all come back around during the, the brunch segment, but it's like, yeah, if you want to have a whole bunch of people around, then you just have a dinner party, you know, and like, I know so, people have small. So much more fun. So much more fun because then everybody, like, they get to bring, you know, whatever they were going to spend on you know, that dinner, they can bring nice wine. And like, I feel like somehow in that way, it's like this beautiful sort of like magical equation that all just feels good where you're like, yeah, I went and spent a bunch of money to get all this food, but like, look at all this wine everybody brought and we're all having a good time and nobody has to like, you know, split the check at the end. Yes, <laughs> yes, totally, totally. Oh, geez. So back to this, these millennials and all their group dinners and month long mm-hmm. birthdays. Economists yes. have something to say to the millennials who are all like, I don't buy things, I buy experiences. Also, sociologists have the same thing to say. And they say, hey, guess what? You're heading into a huge uptick in consumer spending, even if you plan on traveling that more than previous generations, because you're buying all this stuff to support your traveling and your experiences. Mm-hmm. So yeah. get over yourselves. You're all over-consuming. We all are. And also... Like the there's the you know the isolated experiences there's the month long birthdays there's like I was just saying before we recorded too about these sort of like arbitrary gift holidays like um like move anniversaries. I mean I don't even like the sound of that an anniversary of moving <laughs> the way us and our group of friends moves can you imagine all the move anniversaries. Oh, <laughs> God, you'd have to like run a separate calendar just to, just to maintain those. My my question here is: Is it the move anniversary of your most recent move, or of all your moves ever? What if like, the, hey, oh gosh, yeah, or like the Jillian, move anniversary? Yeah, go on, Jillian. I just wanted to remind you that you know, six years ago today, I moved to LA into this apartment. Like, I'm not there anymore, but I just wanted you to know. <laughs> It'd be like that thing they used to have on Facebook where they're like, hey, remember like five years ago when you cut your own bangs weird and a couple people liked it? Yes, I hate that. Did they get rid of that feature? I don't really use it much anymore. I don't know. I haven't I haven't, I haven't been on Facebook in years. It was always a facepalm for me. I was, couldn't, couldn't handle the shame of what I was doing five years ago. I remember there was once where they did like the end of the year, like highlight of your year. And it completely backfired because there's actually a guy I went to college with became like the poster boy for the backfire of it all because they the, the algorithm sorted like the highlight reel of your year by what got the most likes and comments. Oh, no. And dude's apartment burned down. So it was like a picture <laughs> of his flaming apartment. 
And it was like, dear James, remember this highlight of like, you know, 2013 or whatever. It was like, I was really bad. And there was like a guy whose like child died of cancer. And they were like, remember this like banner moment in your year? It was just, oh man. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's rough. I'm glad they uh, maybe walked away from that. Hopefully, I don't know. Now I need to check. Yeah. So, So you and I were trying to break down like, why people buy so much stuff and so much Mm -hmm. experiences. And you and I felt, I mean, and this goes back to like capitalism, that we Mm -hmm. all spend so much time working that you have to maximize your leisure time to kind of prove to yourself and others that you have a high quality life. Mm -hmm. That You have that kind of like elusive work-life balance sort of. (laughs) Yeah, I'd hate that phrase because it – barely exists. At least it has not in my life. Even when I've said, oh, my work-life balance is good. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm in bed. It's 9 p.m. and I'm looking at emails. Like, no, (laughs) that's not a balance, right? Thanks to technology and also just the insane American work ethic, you're never off the Mm. clock. And so even when you do have free time, you feel like you have to quantify that. Like there has to be a value attached to it. And so likes on social media kind of become the metric for how successful you are at having work-life balance, I guess. Yeah. Or it's depressing. It it is. Yeah. I mean, it's like that thing when you're, you know, looking at the emails or whatever, that then there's this other dimension in work where like how invested you are in your work is also like this kind of psychic um, siphon on you. So for instance, if like, you've somehow come to a point where you feel like you're, you know, like your passion is finally your work and that like platitude where they say, you know, if you find what you love, you never work a day in your life or you like figure out somehow to, you know, like make the thing that you love, the thing that you're somehow monetizing. Like then, Mm -hmm. you know, the illusion is like, oh, look, they're having so much fun. But the reality is like, you're just fucking giving yourself more work to do because you're now, I mean, like people who've been on your show say it, you know, like the woman, um, I'm spacing on her name, but the one who's like a, um, you know, she's able to actually turn a profit and make some kind of a living as a a vintage picker, which feels- Oh, Christine, yes. Yeah, yeah, which totally feels like this, you know, like idyllic sort of fantasy life. But when you get down to the brass tacks, like, no, it's still work. Like it's work that you're passionate about. And then it's almost harder because you are so invested in the the work, you know? Oh my God. I mean, (laughs) I've known Christine for years. She was at our wedding. So you probably met her as well. And she is literally working all the time. And that's why I asked her about that because I wanted everyone else to hear that being a vintage seller is more than a full-time job, you know? Uh, So no matter how much you love it, it's still still work, you know? And- Mm -hmm something that you and I talked about that turned a lot of wheels in my brain was this idea that people spend a lot of time trying to make their work, their job seem like it's more than it is like, or seem like it's more fun to them. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's like they have to publicly prove that they love it. And so the example I always like, when I think about that, that I always like to tell people about is, you know, I'm going to preface this by saying, if you haven't gathered by now from listening to a close horse, that, being a buyer is mostly a lot of math and meetings and spreadsheets and, you know, stress and problem mm-hmm. solving, all of those things. Well, then you need to go back and start listening from the beginning again because it's not glamorous 
trade shows where you get to look at clothes or going to showrooms and stuff, that's about as glamorous as it gets. And you'll we're talking about someone actively trying to sell you stuff the whole time. So mm-hmm. how fun is that? And yeah. so I had this coworker at one of my jobs who claimed she, like that being a buyer was her life's work. Like she, it was her dream job. So perhaps that is true. Every time we would travel or go to meetings and stuff, she would take these random photos and hashtag them on Instagram buyer's life. Like, but it was always photos that were intentionally chosen to imply that in some way buying was in fact very glamorous and dreamy. Like there was never a picture of an Excel spreadsheet or, Mm -hmm. you know, you sitting on the floor putting price tags on something because the factory messed it up. Like it's like, or like, or like a picture of you crying because like one of your higher ups, like, you know, killed something you just spent, you know, like nine overnighters working on or something. Totally, totally. None of that. Instead, it would be like a bunch of swatches thrown on a table or a showroom with dreamy lighting. And so we all sort of started laughing, I mean, in a loving way about this buyer's life. And so we would, when we saw really gross pictures in our day-to-day buying life, we would send them to her and be like, hashtag buyer's life. So for me, it'd be like, this is a Starbucks can overflowing with cups onto the floor, like and across the floor. Or here I am at a coffee shop at a trade show, and there are one thousand iPhones plugged into this outlet, like, and all these women looking stressed and keeping an eye on their phones. You know, that's oh. some buyer's life right there. Or mm-hmm. I would also say a mountain, just a mountain of empty plastic water bottles. Now that's oh. hashtag buyer's life for me, and. Yeah. We see that all the time, or you see people who are posting about their work and their own personal social media, like for their job. They're basically providing free marketing for their employer. And that bums me out because I will say I've worked places where that was expected. And if you weren't posting about hot sales or promos or new marketing that was coming up, you weren't a team player. And so it was expected that your life should be in service to this brand, even if in the interview they told you the work-life balance is great. And I think that also that gets into that like other aspect of um, the sort of cult of personality of brands and this sort of thing where it does become like a little bit, I don't know if I want to go so far as to say like brainwashing, but I mean, I think we are all brainwashed to different degrees within the capitalist um, system like i just don't think no for 100 i like how you're like <laughs> just a little bit just a tiny bit <laughs> yeah just like just a, little, a little like not like a full not like a full spin cycle but like definitely like <laughs> you know let's let to soak <laughs> 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 just steep but i mean it's where you steep yeah. you absorb it and then like i think when like when that's the game i guess that there is sort of this like this trick that gets played on you that like somehow when you're in that situation and in that position you feel like you've won quote unquote this mm-hmm. game mm-hmm. <laughs> but my th- my thing all my life has been like i don't even really like this game i feel like this is not a very fun game like this isn't really like this is the prize is that then you get to just like use yourself in service to what like someone who doesn't give a shit about you making more money and then they're still going to want more money after that like what like when you really break it down and you see like you know kind of behind like you were saying like you kind of pull the mask off of it 
it's like what the fuck (laughs) it's always like old man you know Carruthers from you know the haunted amusement park. <laughs> it always is. Always. It always is. And actually, his real name is capitalism. It turns yeah. out. Uh, so I'm going to say something controversial here, which is this: I think half the reason people eat out in restaurants is for social media. Mm. I swear to God, the other half is that they can't cook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, I think social media is such a big part of like sort of exacerbating our consumption. Mm -hmm. And I would cite as an example, having to buy a new outfit for every event, every weekend, every moveiversary, every birthday month event. I mean, this is all for the gram. Before that, it was for Facebook. I don't think it was as much like, you know, good old Friendster and MySpace were driving this as Mm -hmm. much. But like, this is the reality that we live in. This is also why we have to have all these experiences so we can document them and we have to have the right suitcase. It's like you saying how we've all become like set dressers mm-hmm. for our life, you know? Um, you cited something that was your pet peeve, which was single use craft kits. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Another thing you can Instagram is your single use craft kits. And I, I thought that was so funny. In Instagram too, <laughs> you get into this like, um, elevated single-used craft kit which would be these and you were talking about it recently when we were just discussing like you know skills that we might want to acquire and you were saying how you'd really like to just like learn some really practical sewing Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I remember there was this place near where I used to live I'm not going to name a name um, and I'm not even going to say where I lived because I feel like people would be able to figure it out but it was like a very high-end um craft like clothing and a garment like material kind of shop and they would have these um, like knitting classes and weaving classes and you know these are like a few hundred dollars and you basically like it's essentially a glorified single-use craft kit because you're like given you know like the skeins of yarn and then you weave something and then you're like ta-da like weaving you know it's this this skill mm-hmm. now that I have and um Yeah, completely. And I I also think that to get back to Instagram, that it's this self um, stoking fire because you need to get something for everything. But it's not just about you getting your likes. It's about you seeing everyone else getting their likes, which then like inevitably chips away at your sense of satisfaction with yourself. And it puts you right in the imposter trap. (laughs) (laughs) it kicks you right into the penalty box where you're so convinced that everyone else's life is like like their relationships are better than yours and their food that Mm -hmm. they're eating is like they're better at everything than you and i think that we all have that inner critic and so the fact that instagram is basically just like a 24-hour news cycle that just like feeds that demon that we all have (laughs) is like also an element of this (laughs) So what's interesting about social media too is that on one hand, it's how all the people in our lives can make us feel inadequate about Mm -hmm. ourselves, right? The other thing about social media is it is a way to sell us stuff, period. Yes. I have worked in the industry as social media has come up and I have seen how we ditched our previous marketing and advertising budget and shifted it into social media. Mm -hmm. Like- Got to get it on an influencer. You know, these influencers are getting $10,000, $40,000 for one post in your clothing, wow. okay? And 
We've got them literally shilling product. We also have ads. Sometimes I feel like my Instagram feed, because of the algorithm, is more things that are being sold to me than what my friends are doing, and that bums me out. Uh, I think about a lot, like in the early part of my career, you know, I worked for a big, hip, young person retailer Mm -hmm. who shall remain nameless. (laughs) Yes. And we spent a lot of money on events at that point. So we didn't we didn't do any print advertising. You'd never see a billboard or a television commercial or anything like that. Our marketing was all about, you know, sending clothes to magazines to use and their styling and also these events. Like we would do a huge thing at South by Southwest. We were always involved in a lot of music and art stuff. And then social media came and it was like, you know what? We're not going to do South by anymore. We're just going to send someone so we have Instagram content. We're going to shift into sending clothes to influencers who are going to be there. Mm-hmm. And so up somewhere along the line, it was determined that we don't even care that much about experiences. The best way to sell us stuff is to show us someone else having an experience. Mm-hmm. And that just like makes my brain explode to think yes. about it. For all of our talk of us, us millennials loving experiences, it kind of makes me wonder, you know? Yes. Yeah. So it's so true. that brings me to something I wanted to talk to you about that I brought up before is credit card debt, okay? Uh-huh. Because you and I both know that the more you buy and the more right stuff you post on social media, the more rich you're going to seem, right? Because rich, being rich, that's like the ultimate aspiration in Western cultures. Well, I think it, I think it kind of cuts in many different directions, certainly on Instagram, because there's so many microcultures within Instagram. Um, I think that there is the sort of like monolith of, of just like more, 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 like look at my butt, you know, look at my, <laughs> look at my butt. Look, look at my butt genre. <laughs> look at my butt. Like this is a rich person's butt. Like look at, you know, my contouring and like, that's a whole world on Instagram. I definitely think there's like the sort of, like when you're talking about like make being rich embarrassing again, I think there's like a full spectrum of like <laughs> DIY divas and people on there that then are like, oh, look at how, you know, like cutting edge I look in this and that or they're wearing something that is vintage but it's like one of those you know like $400 vintage unicorns you know so there's like a thing where it's Mm -hmm. like there's an implication always of like access that people Mm -hmm. have that can either be construed as because of money or because of like this cool factor you know this kind of like social cachet that you have so I think I think it could be like many different things but the rich thing is certainly like can't be ignored (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a big part of it. Even if you don't want to say that adjective, Mm -hmm. it's the feeling, right? It's that aspirational lifestyle, which always includes being wealthy. So I started to think about credit card debt a lot when I was thinking about the microcosm of people who work in fashion, Mm -hmm. because I know how much people are being paid. And I'm going to tell you, the cooler the places that you work, and I use cooler in quotation marks, the cooler that place is, the less you're being paid. Mm -hmm. So I would see assistant buyers who I knew were maybe, maybe making $35,000 a year wearing like Vetamont coats Mm -hmm. at the snack bar. And I was like, what? Like, how's that working? Either these people have tons of generational wealth, which which is a big part of it, or they have crazy credit card debt, which is also part of it. There's one other thing that I've noticed, that weird phenomenon that happens, like I'm sure it happens in fashion. It's happened in other kind of like businesses that I've worked in and things that I've done 
is that like when you hit a certain level of being say like an influencer or being like so well known for being so successful then you just start getting shit for free which is like the really weird part it's like wealth breeds wealth because you just or wealth brings wealth i guess i would say because it just brings you yeah, more it's stuff like the law of attraction. i guess it is it is the laws of attraction there so the average u.s household like so that's all of us combined together with mm-hmm. revolving credit card debt. So revolving credit card debt means the debt that you carry forward each month, not how mm-hmm. much you charge, but how much you were unable to pay off. Mm-hmm. The average American household has an estimated balance of almost $7,000 as of September, 2019. I can only assume it has shifted in all kinds of crazy ways mm-hmm. this year in this like K-shaped recovery. Some people are seeing their debt go up and up and up. Others are have been stockpiling money because their jobs haven't been affected and they're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's costing people more than $1,000 a year in interest. So if you're already not in a great financial situation, the last thing you need is another $1,000 stacked on top there. And credit card debt has decreased more than 5% in the past year because, like I said, there's this K-shaped recovery and some people are paying off their credit cards. But in the last five years, our total credit card debt for this country has increased 20%. I know. That's really scary. When you see a double digit like that, that's scary. Americans as a whole in just credit card debt have $413 billion that they owe. Billion with a B. But I just wanted to drop in here that Americans also have 1.54 1.54 trillion in student loan debt. Oh my gosh, so don't, get, still, don't get me started. I know, <laughs> like I know. That. I mean, uh, yeah. that's a lot of debt. And yes, we're not even talking about car payments and mortgages. And when you took it, look at the total amount of money that consumers owe, which I wanted to look at that because at first I was like, oh, who cares about cars and houses? And then I was like, are you kidding? We all know someone who has a car they can't afford. Mm-hmm. We know people who buy houses that are way too much house and are stupid, right? Mm-hmm. The total U.S. consumer debt is $14 trillion. That's for everything we owe. So that's stuff we bought. I suppose we bought our education as well, but that was a scam. Our mm-hmm. houses, our cars, our experiential birthday bonanzas. That's our <laughs> debt, man. Dude, that's the price I know. Tag. Like Even as I you're know. saying that, I mean, there were so many things just like – shuffling through my brain like I mean we don't have time here and now and I don't have the numbers on hand but I'm just thinking about like the decimation of the middle class and like those you know when you see the figures that are like essentially you know in like you know like what people are parents age roughly so people that were kind of like in their late 20s early 30s sort of from like the mid 70s to the kind of early 80s time that they you know, like, we're making like a nice amount of money, like you could buy a house, you could do that. But then everything cost less, too. And now people in like the quote unquote, middle class are making so much less The like the growth never happened in their wages. Mm-hmm. And then the price of everything has gone up. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then our need to have more and more stuff has gone up. And so and- it's there's a nightmare. Also, well, there's also this just, and this kind of gets into like a lot of other things that we may or may not get around to talking about, but like this sense of like expectation of like what it means to live well is so to this day, I feel like it's like very homogenous. 
it's very cookie cutter. It doesn't necessarily speak to like the various types of people that we are to say that like the thing you need to strive for is to have a house, to have, you know, like this kind of job that like is going to make you enough money to maintain all these other spinning plates that you seem to think someone told you are like, you know, kind of the, um, the earmarks or like the, um, the goalposts of like being a success. Mm -hmm, You know, mm -hmm. like that's a big problem in our country too, where, you know, like it wasn't until I probably was like in my late twenties and had been living in California and like really kind of like had my eyes open to how many different like kinds of like rad hermits there are, you know, just people that like, are just not like they're like making a thing of like rejecting the system, but they're just like, you know, it turns out I'm really happy, like living in this trailer. It's perfect for me. You know, like I've got like a road dog and like when I need, when I need to, I like fit some cabinets and then otherwise I go surfing, you know, and like, that's fucking rad. That's, you know, feels aspirational. (laughs) I agree. I mean, that sounds amazing to me. I do think when we talk about houses, for example, and these sort of milestones that we think we're supposed to hit, I felt like, and I don't know if you saw this happen, but around the time I turned 30, it seemed like everyone decided that they had to buy a house and that they were like sort of owed a house. And that that is because like our parents all had houses, you know, that kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. I would see their frustration of like, oh, I can't afford one. It It doesn't seem to be fair. My partner and I both have jobs. Like why we went to college, like, why can't we have a house? Blah, 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 blah. And it would turn into the sense of like, the world's out to get me. I can't buy a house. Well, and it also, it, it, it like, I feel like that kind of spun off a lot of these little like renaissances in smaller towns and cities where it became all about like, this is the place to live because you can get a house for like X amount of money, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know? So there was like, people were like all about Portland or like people are into these like smaller Midwest towns because they're like, this is great. Like now I can have this kind of thing that I I feel I'm like at a point for. Totally. Totally. And I think you just have to say like, Hey, maybe you're ready for a house or maybe you're not. My mother-in-law, I mean, I'm going to tell you, I felt I had a, at the past few years, like I said, I've been pretty unhappy and uh, for a multitude of reasons, it's a really stressful world to live in right now. And I was kind of like, is it crazy that I'm like married? I've had a career. I'm this age and I don't own a house and never have. Like I'm such a fucking loser because some people I worked Mm. with would have multiple houses. It's crazy, unnecessary. Uh, And my mother-in-law who has been a real estate appraiser and developer her entire career, she's totally badass, was like, if you don't want to buy a house, you don't need a house. She's like, all a house is is a savings account. You know, like Mm -hmm. if you're not sure you love a place or what your life is at that moment, then 100% do not buy a house there because it will be Mm -hmm. an albatross. And she said to me that actually, I mean, all depending on where you live and what you do, that it actually makes more financial sense to rent in a lot of ways. So just putting that out there for people who might be feeling like, why don't I have a house? I'm a loser, whatever. Like this idea of these like financial milestones and like things you're supposed to own is kind of bullshit. And in 2020, Mm -hmm. it's like retrograde, you know, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. I had had this moment, like I was out um, probably like towards the end of the summer, I went on a field trip with, um, There's a guy here in the LA area who's sort of like my local dad. He's like a surrogate dad who lives locally. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Good to have a local dad. I like the idea of a local dad. (laughs) 
Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, he's sort of like, he's been helping me learn to play chess and um, he like takes me out on field trips and like points out all the places in Santa Barbara where you used to get Coke. And it's like, it's all very wholesome. And um, we were driving around like Santa Barbara and we were looking at like these houses that were just across the street from the ocean. And, you know, they all like seemed like pretty chill places to hang out in. And I was like, oh yeah, like I'll bet the people who live in these houses are like, probably like not as depressed to have to stay home all the time as other people and he said something that like it was almost like he was just channeling my my actual east coast dad because he said was yeah but you know it's all about the monthly nut <laughs> it's just an expression an expression i'd only ever heard my own dad use <laughs> I was like, but man it's so true though it boils down to that monthly nut and like that's kind of the thing about like owning a house particularly in like the era of covid is like if you're one of those people, like, you know, all these people that have worked in these companies that are um, that are in a position to take everybody remote, which then leads to a whole other series of questions about, like, you know, operating costs and whether or not it actually just makes sense to stay remote, mm-hmm. you know, if this keeps going on. Um, but, you know, if you're one of those people who's like Zoom meetings and like basically has not even seen like a blip in your income stream then yeah, you know, like you're in your house and you're like, this is fine. I've still got my house or whatever. But like, if you're in any other kind of a situation, you've owned a fucking house, that thing is just like bleeding you dry. Totally, totally. And so I feel like if you don't have a house right now, I wouldn't sweat it because the whole world is so uncertain. Like the thought mm-hmm. of owning a house right now terrifies me because it's like- Oh gosh, it fills me with dreams. I know, I know. Like what if, what if the roof caved in? You know, what would I do? <laughs> like, I just, I, I. Yeah. Or like, what if like the climate crisis just like spirals out of control and I'm living on the fucking surface of the sun and I'm in like, you know, Mad Max. No, I mean, totally. I, I totally, totally. Like, I'm so glad that we didn't jump on all the crazy homeowning schemes that we've conjured over the past couple of years where I was like, what if we move to New Mexico? What if we do this? What if we do that? And I'm just glad that mm-hmm. we're like letting it ride for a little bit. <laughs> so. Yeah. So. There are a lot of – we wanted to talk about wellness a little bit because wellness is something that people do for the gram, right? It is certainly a consumer money pit. I mean, like it's a massive industry. I wish I would have looked up some statistics there, but I will for the end of this episode. And you and I were kind of talking about like the commodification of yoga and meditation, things that mm-hmm. could be nearly free – that are now these huge industries, huge money makers. Think about Lululemon selling you like $100 yoga pants or all right. the meditation apps and crazy yoga classes. Well, yeah. And then like speaking of experiences, you get into the big ticket like retreats, you know, and all that kind of shit where you're like dropping several dimes to go to New Mexico and, you know, like have someone show you how to do it. Oh, totally. <laughs> it's so crazy. And it's become – like showing your wellness on social media, like also implies this thing about your lifestyle and your success and just who you are. It's like you pay money to demonstrate that, right? And you have to buy all the things that go with it. And I would also say that thinness is part of that, right? I mean, we know that. Oh, I would say that, yeah. I mean, I think that in recent times and it's like, it's really cool and refreshing and I hope it just continues until it kind of like drowns out the um, the monolith of like the sort of the thin 
kind of cis gendered usually woman mm-hmm, <laughs> who mm-hmm. is like the avatar of this whole kind of lifestyle juggernaut um I mean, I think there there are more people now who are like body positive, who are queer, who are getting out into the space where people of color and they're like, you know, like this is actually just it's it, it does feel good to do yoga. Like, I'm not going to lie. I've been doing yoga most days during um, during quarantine. It is like a huge um, like you could call it a quote unquote life hack for, you know, just kind of like your overall state of um of mind and of body to just be like, Hey, I'm stuck in the house all day. The one thing I can do today that will like, not feel like I've just been, you know, like in a complete pit of depression all day long is that for one hour I can like close my eyes and do these different movements. And I'll, I'll name drop the app that I've been using and you can, you can edit it out. Cause it's not like an ad for the app, but um, I've been doing one called glow, just G L O and it's like $23 a month, I think. But when you break down the cost of like a single yoga class can be $23. Oh yeah. I mean, that's like, 30, a, that's a hot deal. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's like a reasonably priced yoga class. And like with that, it's like, you know, it's like having a library And you can be like, oh, yeah, I want to do, you know, like I want to do my back or I want to do my hamstrings or whatever. And so I've definitely been just like squeezing the money worth out of that. Um, But it is like it's weird because it's also it's like it's a whole culture. So you're getting into like the community element of it. But then it's creating like an echo chamber community of the people who can afford these things. And so I think there's like always a little bit of spiritual bypass kind of like wafting in the air in these (laughs) situations um yeah and it is super frustrating too because I do think like um there are a lot of these things that like I think wellness you can um definitely shoehorn like clean eating slow food um and then you get into food deserts of course which would be um the opposite of that. And these are all, you know, these are issues of class. These are issues of race. These are issues of um, capitalism Mm -hmm. and ultimately like, you know, like everything flowing towards where the money is and, and hollowing out where the money isn't. And it's just really dumb because people should be able to stretch (laughs) And and the idea that like stretching is somehow like this upper echelon, you know, sort of, um, you know, exclusive district. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. It's it's so silly, but I mean, also like the same thing when we talk about like the idea of clean eating, healthy eating, organic eating, whatever. Like access to good food should include everyone, but you and I have seen, I mean, I know you have personal experience working in that like Mm -hmm. upper echelon of like clean food and Mm -hmm. the amount of money people are paying for like their vegetables and their broth. Like it's insane. It's insane. And so you wouldn't like go to Walmart, buy a box of hamburger helper, make it, Instagram it, and get a thousand likes unless people thought you were pranking. But the reality is that plenty of people are eating hamburger helper tonight. So Yeah. I mean I'm I'm eating some chili that I made. <laughs> That's basically basically hamburger helper. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So this idea of wellness, thinness, I wanted to talk about tans for a second as this like let's, hallmark yeah, of wealth and social media mm-hmm. success because 
there was a time when having a tan implied to the world that you were poor because you had been out working in the field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now having a tan, and this has been going on since probably I would say at least the 60s, tanning, it means that you travel, that you have a life of leisure, that perhaps you have an outdoor pool, you know? And Mm. well, especially in places like, um, you know, in the Northern hemisphere where it becomes cold in the wintertime to have a tan in the wintertime, like obviously means that you can afford to travel someplace Mm -hmm. where you're going out in a bikini or, you know, whatever. And it just turns into this whole weird thing where like every influencer that I see, of course, a majority of the biggest influencers are thin, cis, female, white, come from a privileged background. They get the crazy darkest spray tans. I mean, Mm -hmm. our gross, disgusting president has a spray tan permanently. Mm. It's just a really bad executed one. I realized that everybody who works on his staff does now too. You can see it happen as someone new joins suddenly. Ooh, what if it's what if it's got like a consciousness and it's some kind of a virus? Like it's like spreading. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But so tans, like once this thing that was like, oh, you're poor. Much like thinness. And there was a time where if you were thin, it meant you didn't have enough to eat, right? Well, I mean, it's like it's like that meme that goes around where um, I mean, I've I've heard it referred to many times where it's like, oh, that feeling when you're you think you're rocking like the no makeup look and then you catch sight of yourself in like a shop window and you realize you look like um, like a workhouse orphan from like a Victorian <laughs> yeah. novel. It's like me every every gonna, day of quarantine for sure. Not yeah, yeah. Winter. Well, I mean, um, I mean, even that no makeup look is funny to me because they're in. Like Glossier has made a fortune selling you makeup to look like you're not wearing makeup, you know? Yeah, but also it's to make you look oh so dewy. Oh, I mean so, everything so is shiny. Like, so shiny. Dewy. Like as if <laughs> as if you've like are a nymph and you slept out on the grass and everything settled just so and like, you know. <laughs> Like it's like that opening sequence of like the test of the Durbervilles <laughs> with <laughs> Nastasha Kinski, you know? Yes. It's like all the little virgins going to dance by Stonehenge. It's like And looking dewy and delightful. Uh yeah. So like So fertile. So fertile. So fertile. <laughs> is that what Glossier is really trying to sell? The idea of fertility? I wouldn't put it past them. <laughs> so yeah, so it's like the things, all these qualities that we're talking about here that can be a symbol of wealth, success, a life worth lived. Guess what? They all have a massive industry of stuff to sell you behind them. Wellness. I mean, we could go on and on with the workout wear, the moon juice powders or dust, whatever they are. The dust. <laughs> Classic LA $10 juice, you know, mm-hmm. the nicest yoga mat, reusable water bottles that are super fancy, way more than you actually needed. Um, Thinness. I mean, like, don't get me started on the diet industry. Oh, let's I let's mean, leave that. That's to one side. just yeah. like if you haven't heard, it's a huge evil fucking industry. Cheese, uh, oh, yeah. Tans. There are tanning salons, spray tans, after tan lotion, uh, bronzer. I mean, it's a whole industry there. It's also all being just like underscored by the fact that despite like some gestures towards more inclusivity and um, more diversity. Ultimately, when you're looking inside most magazines, you're still seeing someone who's like about 16 years old <laughs> and like yeah. Yeah. Recently, recently hit puberty and they're in that like twilight zone where they've got like 
sort of hips and sort of a chest, but then their arms are just these like fawn branches. <laughs> like, just, yeah, 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 no, t- totally, <laughs> totally. And so we're being sold all these ideas in order to sell us more stuff. Social media kind of fuels this. We're buying, we're buying so we can look good. Another thing I wanted to throw in here, which is like especially prevalent during the quarantine is this whole access to nature, getting out in nature, being outdoorsy. You want to talk about a huge, huge industry right there? This is one of the industries that has actually benefited so much. Like I can't even begin to describe how much from the pandemic because Mm -hmm. you can't go anywhere to, to, uh, you know, create content for your Instagram. So you're buying hiking gear and going out. You're going camping for the first time. You're buying a fucking RV. Like RVs Mm. are on back order, okay? (laughs) Because everybody's like, I'm outdoors now. I've been seeing so many of them um, because I've always had like a lifelong sort of like crush on the idea of having some kind of a like a mobile home unit, whether stationary or stationary or otherwise. Um, And I've really been like I've been seeing an uptick like when I was driving um, on the highway last week, I was I was really taken aback by just how many of them I um, I clocked just on the five. If you're missing Jillian already, don't worry, because we'll be continuing our conversation in the next episode where we'll be digging into minimalism and the whole Marie Kondo of it all. So get ready. (laughs) You won't want to miss it. By the way, if you thought the phrase monthly nut, which Jillian used earlier, was something sorted, It's actually a term that means your monthly expenses, specifically your sort of fixed expenses like rent, utilities, insurance, that kind of thing. Just a reminder to check out the Clothes Horse Buy Better holiday pledge on Instagram. If you plan on buying gifts, and seriously, you don't have to, please remember how powerful your money is. Spend it where it makes a difference. Buy from local and small businesses. I know smaller businesses can be a little hard to find, So I'm just going to shout out my friends at Gooder Gift Guide again, and that's at Gooder Gift Guide on Instagram, and they're launching on Black Friday, so just a couple more days from now. They're curating all kinds of amazing gift lists to make shopping better and easier for you. Also, consider secondhand this year. I'm doing an entirely secondhand holiday with my family, and I'm actually really excited about it. Secondhand can mean a lot of things. It can be vintage, repurposed, upcycled, and you can find stuff in a lot of places. There's Etsy, eBay, Poshmark, Depop, thrift stores, estate sales, consignment shops. I mean, I could go on and on. Yard sales. It's a fun, sustainable, and very unique gift-giving approach. No matter where you're shopping, be nice to retail workers Be nice to online customer service agents and postal carriers and delivery drivers and wear a mask. Let's get into the spirit of this season by being our best selves to the others in the world. You know, as terrible as this year has been, I think it can be the beginning of a new era where we all realize how important everyone is and we treat one another, even strangers, with respect and compassion. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. 
If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. I mean, I always say that. You knew I was going to say that. And of course, what else do I always say? Tell your friends. (laughs) I mean, that's how we spread the word and that's how we build our community, right? As always, thank you to everyone who has shared our content, recommended us on Instagram. I love that. I love hearing your encouragement. I love when you send me memes. Some of you have been sending me some kawaii stuff lately, which I've been really into. (laughs) It all makes me so happy. Um, And as I've been saying, if you ever want a source for any of the information I'm presenting, statistics, etc., please just get in touch. I have all of it here. It might be helpful for you if you're trying to convert someone else to not giving their money to assholes or maybe for a school paper. I've got it all. Do you have some feedback, an episode idea? Do you want to be a guest on Clothes Horse? You can drop me a line at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com or you can DM via Instagram at clotheshorsepodcast. And if you have a question, no matter how complex or weird it might seem, please hit me up because you know I love a research project. If you would like to meet other Close Horse listeners, please join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. I'll share a link in the show notes. And if you have trouble finding it on Facebook, uh, just send me a DM and we'll figure it out because Facebook groups are weird. (laughs) And of course, you can't forget the Close Horse hotline. The phone number is 717-925-7417. Give me a call, even if you just want to say hi or tell me something random, tell me what you're doing for the holidays, ask me a question, tell me a story, talk about your collections. I love when I get a voicemail from one of you. And don't forget to check out the department. I co-host it with my friend Kim. We talk about trends, taste, our obsessions, all kinds of weird stories. (laughs) This week is a really good episode definitely worth checking out. It's part one of our, our series, Tragic Trends. And this one's about the hashtag girl boss movement, which we have a lot of, I don't know, firsthand experience with. So please check it out. And once again, I'll link that in the show notes. Thanks as always to my other half, Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.